The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in New York City. This is Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the human feeding frenzy that is a presidential campaign cycle. I'm Alex Wagner of MSNBC. Joining us from our fair Washington, D.C. studios, Annie Lowry, contributing editor with New York Magazine, and Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine. Hey. Hi. Everyone out there, our dear listeners, our loyal listeners, our good friends, my family, we have some big news to share, and it is not great news. This will be our final episode of Podcast for America. Though our passion for politics does not wane, has never waned, nor our love for your incredible Twitter feeds and illustrations like those of Bernie Sanders as the Coppertone Baby or Annie Lowry as <laughs> Jesus's prom date, Alas, this is the truth. It must be so. We'll give you a kind of half-assed explanation at the end of the show. Deep tease! So please, listen carefully. Savor the asides, us talking over each other, the strange vocal tics, the things that make this Podcast for America on this, our final show. First up, we will talk about the Republican race the cage match between Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, and Ted Cruz. Then we will discuss the Democratic race for the presidential nomination, specifically Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton versus Bill Clinton versus Chelsea Clinton. No, not really. They're not all running against each other, but they are all going to be on stage in the coming weeks and months, and we will unpack all of that for you. And then we will have a charming, chummy sign-off where we once again thank you and plead, please, for your forgiveness. Okay, so we will go on to our first big fabulous discussion about the Republican Party and its future, specifically the polling that we're getting this week in in advance of Iowa. Donald Trump and Ted Cruz are making a run for it in Iowa. Some polls show Trump up 31%, Cruz at 29%. That's a Quinnipiac poll. Another poll, the Real Clear Politics poll, reports that Cruz is up ahead of Trump by two points. Rubio's down around 14%. Guys, peering into our magical crystal balls, where do we think this race is going in just two weeks when the first caucus tallies are in? Um, magical crystal ball. I didn't know we were supposed to bring our magical crystal balls. I just had my yeah, regular crystal ball. not your ordinary oh, crystal ball. Can you hold Mark, on? Mark brought his discount crystal ball. I did, man. It's like yeah. from like right. Sears. <laughs> well, I, I clear it, I actually pull it out of my... Well, I, I got to find this. Uh, Annie, why don't you go ahead? Where's this race going? <laughs> so I still think that Donald Trump is going to pull out some of these like big states. I think he's going to have a much better showing than the pundits are predicting because you can kind of put a story that shows him falling apart, sort of, but the other people that these folks are going to vote for, I mean, Ted Cruz or... In Iowa know. specifically? No, not Iowa specifically. Oh, okay. Just Iowa is be- being the beginning, the first domino to, to kind of keel over. I don't know that I see Trump winning Iowa, but anyway, what do you think, Mark? Uh, I think Trump could win Iowa. I don't think he will, but I think, you know, there's this weird, like, assumptions that people are like, all right, now Cruz will win Iowa, and then yeah. Trump will... Um, who the hell knows? I mean, I think... Uh, Cruz probably will win Iowa. I think if Trump shows very well in Iowa and or New Hampshire, I don't think he necessarily has to win either one. Actually, probably he has to win New Hampshire if he doesn't win Iowa. But I think once you get into the lumpier states, meaning they're all lumped together, they're more media-centric, they're more name recognition-y, he's shown consistently an ability to win attention that that actually that kind of currency – 
you know, will actually help him. And you know, things like organization mm-hmm. um, aren't as big a deal. Yeah, and he started to spend a lot more money on ads, right? He started or some to, money. Some, yeah. yeah, coming from zero, it's, it seems like a lot, right? He's doing the things that long ago we predicted that eventually he was going to have to do. Right. Uh, perhaps not organizationally, but at least in terms of, of advertising. And anyway, what do you think, Alex? I mean, organizationally, we're hearing that Trump is making some investments. I, I guess I would ask a meta question, which is, you guys have been, we've all been on this long, strange trip mm-hmm. for several months now. And it, if if his name wasn't Trump, if it was Bush, it wouldn't really be a question who the front runner is. But because Trump is so outlandish, right, all of us want, I think, believe that somehow he will fall. And yet, I mean, he hasn't. Clinton and Sanders are separated, and we'll talk about them in a second. They're separated by the same margin in Iowa, and and uh, yet everybody's like, okay, it's all it's Clinton's race to lose, right? And there are a lot of factors, but I just think it's kind of interesting that even months later, everybody kind of assumes that somehow, inevitably, Trump's going to fall apart. Yeah, I don't assume that. I, I you don't. I, I haven't assumed that for a while, actually, because I think that his strength has been very sustained. You know, he is so far beyond flash in the pan, and I think when you weather as num- as many alleged storms as he has, you develop you know antibodies, scar tissue. I mean, pick your pick your human protection metaphor, where you can just sort of withstand these things. Now, the only thing we don't know if he, if he can withstand or not is an actual electoral loss, but. Look, I mean, in a big field, and the, and the field is not going to be winnowed until the voting starts, he needs 20, 25 percent. And he right now is consistently getting over 30, 35, both in national polls and in, in Iowa and New Hampshire. I mean, he's, he's right there. So the big unknown here is his organizational strength, which you know, may or may not matter in New Hampshire. And supposedly it's not that bad in Iowa. Do you think that he inevitably runs as a third-party candidate if he can't get the if somehow an establishment candidate like Rubio surges and starts racking up electoral votes, do you think there's any possibility that Trump just kind of bows out of this? Yeah, totally. I mean, you I mean, do? I yeah, totally. He bows out and like runs as a third party guy. No, no, bows out entirely and doesn't run as a, just says, OK, oh. I mean, I pledge that I wouldn't run as a third party candidate, kind of. And I'm done. I'm just going to leave the party. Sure. I'm going to leave the party as in not the Republican or Democrat, but the, but the presidential race party. Yeah. I mean, I think that he's thoroughly fucking enjoying himself. Right. I would. Yeah. I, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't run as a third party candidate. You know, I, I think if he does that, he has all sorts of potential to screw with the election. More broadly, the likelihood of him winning is close to nil. Right. I mean, the general election. Yeah. You would think. Yeah. You would think. Oh, God. I mean, I guess the other the other person that is sort of making headlines this week is Mike Bloomberg and talk that. Well, the news that Bloomberg sort of commissioned some polling to find out where he would stand in a a general against Hillary. Mm -hmm. That just delights me. If Trump wins the early states of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, if he does better than expected on Super Tuesday, does someone kind of try and rush in as the knight in shining armor on the Republican side or as an independent? Oh, my goodness. Where is Mitt Romney right now? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I'm but I feel like Bloomberg is, is kind of middle m- distance. N- not in the Republican Party. I mean, you know, m- m- Mike Bloomberg might be a knight in shining armor for 
you know, independence, independence yeah. you know, a number of Democrats, you know, maybe whatever moderate Republicans are left. But, you know, throw him in the Republican Party today and, and he'd be very lucky, I think, to be competing with Christie Bush and, and that yeah. whole stream. I think that do you guys think that we can convince him to just give us the money that he would waste so that we can have a bonfire <laughs> with it? Because that would be really fun. Sure. We just left it on fire. We'll put it maybe, in like a trash can. Maybe he'll just sponsor can. the podcast going forward. Or maybe and, a And he'll dumpster. just do it. He'll take it over. Yeah. Um, I do, because you guys brought your, well, at least Annie brought her expensive crystal ball. Mm-hmm. I would ask you to look even further into the future to a New York Times headline from this weekend written by the inimitable Jonathan Martin. He doesn't write headlines. Sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. A piece written by Jonathan Martin and assigned a headline by one of the intrepid New York yeah. Times editors. Mm-hmm. In which they posit that this could be the sort of fracture that breaks the Republican Party between the base, the rest of base, and the establishment. Depending on how well Cruz or Trump do in the long run, you may not be able to put the party back together again, like Humpty Dumpty. And I guess I wonder how, what, what you guys think of that thesis. Totally buy it. I mean, I don't think, I mean, with all due respect to my colleague in my newspaper. I mean, that's not, I mean, remember James Carville when he was, he was on our podcast, on our grand tour to LA, he was talking about just this possibility. You know, there's a lesser possibility that the Democrats split if Hillary or if they somehow lose. But I mean, I think the Cruz-Trump part of the party right now is, it seems pretty strong. And if you want to throw Rubio in there or you want to sort of tack him back to the establishment, I mean, that's a very, very, very hardcore of non-establishment Republicans. And I don't know where these people go. I mean, I don't know where they go in November, you know, whether it's to Hillary or vice versa. Or where does the establishment go? It's like I always think about this in terms of if you were looking, if you posited that you weren't American, right? You're like a Japanese reporter in the United States trying to understand the weird tribal traditions here. The party is like currently construed makes no sense. The notion that you would have like your average Trump voter in the same big tent as like Pete Peterson, it just it it doesn't (laughs) quite work. So just logically. Yeah, I think the case is compelling and it's been compelling for a long time. Ross Douthit has been writing about this for ages and ages. And so I guess the question for me is functionally what happens? If you believe that the party is going to break in half, how does that happen? And that, I think, is a huge mystery to me because I think that just for for the reason of inertia alone, they instead just stay together and fight and hate each other. It's like a bad marriage but, but- in a state with no no-fault divorce. But Annie, to your point about a Trump supporter versus like Pete Peterson, the things that they really both of them or each of them truly care about are almost like diametrically opposed. Right. Like, oh, yeah. Pete Peterson wants I mean, other than maybe the low taxes thing, although, you know, your Trump voter likes Social Security. Oh, yeah. And, you know, likes earned benefit programs. And so that right. And then immigration. They are on opposite sides of the coin. The environment, in large part, I feel like business interests understand that we're going mm-hmm. through climate change. I mean, it just a trade, like I, wages. I mean, I don't know where the common thread is, e- even social issues. I mean, I think, you know, Wall Street conservative business interests don't really care about gay marriage. They don't really want to vote on abortion. It's I don't understand why you'd even stay in the same room. Like, ha- I don't know why you got married in the first place, to use your metaphor, Annie. But it, it was an arranged like divorce marriage. would make the most sense. <laughs> yeah, it was an arranged marriage. That's a One great, of them that's got, a great they got answer. pregnant during the Reagan years. Yeah. And they kind of had to, I don't know, they had <laughs> to do the honor so. of the Reagan years. It always comes back to thing. Ronald, doesn't it? Doesn't it, though? Yeah. It always comes back to Mark 
bringing oh, in. Oh, stop! The wow. bedroom. It's not the bedroom. <laughs> this is this is. We, well, I, it, it was a. It was within the marital context. So this is yeah. a very family values application. Yes, you're right. They've you're been, right. In the conjugal, they've context. been growing apart for years. The fights have been getting worse, and the counseling isn't. It working. was also artificial insemination, so it was completely <laughs> unsexual. Oh yeah. lord! Yeah. Just just throwing out it. I want to know what the divorce looks like because it's got to happen. And the question is, who gets to keep the the, the word Republican to describe? Their party. No, I definitely think that like the Trump wing becomes the Freedom Party. Hmm. That is a, that is the only thing that I'm like. No, the Trump of... party. He would name it after himself. Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. What's I mean, the like the Trumpite people. He would name it after himself. You're he names everything like... after himself. Yeah, the they'll Trump get party, sort of the, the Trump Tower, the, the Tea Partiers, who are I think a distinct group. But yeah, they'll they'll be like the Freedom Party. No, but that's sort of a Tea Partyish word, and Trump isn't really a Tea Party guy. But I think that that modeled identity, those two groups of people, will coexist in a new party. You have to name it after Trump because, given that yeah. it is a cult of personality, and he has made it a cult of personality, and it's the the most incredible ego trip ever yeah. he would it would just make sense do you guys want to hear something funny so i was going yeah. through like old trump clips the other day and there's this great new york times like party story where they're at a party with donald trump and he's actually just broken up with melania even though they later got back together mm-hmm. i guess and the new york times reporter asked him about it and he says she will be missed wow that's <laughs> awesome that's so mafioso. I know. She will be missed. She will be missed. Mm. Well, Rand Paul will be missed, right? But... Just got kicked off of the uh, kicked off. Oh, of did the he really? Debate. Oh, yeah. what do we know about that? I haven't. I have not been. Who, who? I believe that they said that they were going to whittle it down to six, and mm-hmm. so they offered him a spot on the undercard, and he said no. He, he said no, thanks. Yeah, I don't blame him. I think that that's a power move, or Agreed. not a power move, but that's Agreed. the only play. Someone left. needs to name a podcast going forward as the undercard. That's for the next podcast. All right. Okay, let's take, speaking of speaking of next podcast, we're going to take a quick break to tell you about Slate's parenting podcast called Mom and Dad Are Fighting. This is so apropos because we just, we're talking about mom and dad fighting. They are having a live show later this month. It's going to be in Brooklyn, the borough of Brooklyn, at the Bell House on Tuesday, January 26th. And they will be having a special guest, poet and first lady of New York City, Sherlane McRae. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. Check it out. Okay, so we were talking about mom and dad fighting. Um, I don't know that we can call Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton the Democratic version of mom and dad, but we can say that they are fighting insofar as they are pitted against each other in this Democratic race for president. Clinton, according to the latest polling, has a three-point lead, 48% on Sanders, who is at 45%. We don't know why Martin O'Malley is still in the race. Uh, he has 5% and obviously is into the idea of hemorrhaging cash. New Hampshire polling shows Clinton and Sanders within the margin of error. It is that tight. I, I, Are you guys, Mark, are you surprised by this? No, not at all. I think Sanders could win one, at least at least one, maybe two states. And I think that this, I mean, I, 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 in some ways, the Democratic race has been compelling for a number of months now. People just haven't paid attention. And I think, you know, if Sanders actually puts some wins on the board in these early states, it'll force itself to be paid attention to. I mean, because it won't be in the Trump Republican orbit. Um, The other thing is, if he wins these two states, there is two weeks between New Hampshire and Nevada. So there'll be plenty of time to talk about this, plenty of time to talk about Hillary imploding, plenty of time for, you know, the requisite Clinton orbit hand-wringing that we're so accustomed to when these things go wrong. There's a huge segment of the Democratic electorate that would love to see some trouble caused for the front-runner. One, because they're 
they're suspicious of front runners to begin with. And two, you know, I just don't know if there's a bottomless pit of goodwill for, for Hillary among that 50, 60 percent of, of troublemakers. And it's a troublemaker party also. And, and Bernie Sanders is a troublemaker. So in some ways, yeah. it's a it's a match. I mean, I continue to be pretty sanguine about this. I agree with you that he could pick up a primary or two. I see no way in which it gets much further than that. And I also I just think it's fascinating watching the gravitational effect that he's having on her. So Clinton came out on Monday and she suggested, I think it was like a 5% surtax on all income over $5 million, which like is a very progressive proposal. It would hit, and it's most progressive because it would it would tax income from just normal work and investment income in the same way. And this is like pure Sanders. He is dragging her to the left pretty effectively. And I think that that's the most interesting part about this is how much she's, you know, really had to grapple with with these policy issues in order to, you know, keep his supporters happy. And the other, I mean, I don't know if you guys have found this too, but I find when talking to Sanders supporters, they're very clear eyed about the fact that they want to support Sanders in the primary in order to pull her to the left. And then Mm -hmm. they will vote for her absolutely in the general. Yeah, it makes sense. Whereas that's not true on the Republican side, for instance. No, I don't think so. I would hope that the Clinton, and I don't have any inside um, intel on this, but I I would imagine that Hillary and her campaign is – you know, pretty worried about what could happen. I mean, sure. they're, they're, I think they're still pretty haunted by the Obama experience and being you yeah. know, defeated by the, the unexpected yeah. insurgent in their own party. And just Obama and Sanders just have so much in common. They do. Personality-wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Temperament, mm-hmm. oratory. Yeah. I, I do think there's something to be said. Mark, you mentioned this, that Clintonian hand-wringing. I mm-hmm. mean, I think because of, to some degree, Benghazi, but in large part the email scandal, you know, it feels kind of like, to some degree, the media and maybe the public kind of maxed out on early stage hand wringing oh, for the Clinton. You know, no. it was just kind of like, oh God, we can't worry. We can't worry about her being in trouble anymore. Like we, we, right. we th- there has been so much so early on that it almost, it's almost like she got a pass yeah. at this, we're, at this stage of the game. Where I think, you know, if the, those other scandals, if you want to call them that, if those other sort of moments hadn't come to pass. There would be more, I think, sort of like fomenting of of uncertainty around right. what was going to happen than there is now. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think that headache for Clintons, for the Clintons was there like a year ago, two years ago. I mean, I think that certainly the email thing crystallized it to a point. But, you know, now whether Trump is going to actually help make her a sympathetic figure again by bringing up, you know, Bill's quote unquote abuse in a, in a way, Trump is ensuring that we enact the entire psychodrama of the late 90s entirely before the voting starts so that we don't have to go through that again. She's got a lot of baggage. And I mean, I think what she's done in the last year has confirmed it, but I don't think that's new. Yeah. Bill Clinton and Chelsea Clinton, for that matter, are going to be much more prominent on the campaign trail now this year. And I feel like I've talked to some fairly seasoned political veterans, and there is some real consternation about Clinton Insofar as he's seen as as a as a a, a tool, mm-hmm. but he is also a liability. Yeah. Not just because of his past, but also right. his present. What his role will be as an advisor and a spokesperson for his wife. Right. I think it's interesting because it seems to me that the Republicans bringing up his infidelity, her reaction to his infidelity, all of this kind of like vaguely accusatory, what did she know and don't you trust women? It has caused me to reflect on just how psychotic the whole Monica Lewinsky thing was. Like leaving the – I know it was consenting adults and everything, but I just – I had almost forgotten how completely fucking nuts that was. Mm. And 
I think that the purpose of it is just to kind of bring up the Clinton fug, right? The air that these people are kind of smarmy. Fug? What is fug? Like like fug. Can someone help Good me word, here? Yeah, Your generation, it, man. It's Tell like me. like filthy foggy whatever. Does that stand for something? Fug? It's a real word, I believe. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it is. I'm going to look it up up. as we speak. Um, But uh, because nobody can quite say, like, what was wrong with what Hillary Clinton did. She was, I think, in the least enviable position in American public life at that moment. Here, your dirtbag husband is cheating on you. And I think that they've been smart to keep him out of the campaign. At some point, they're going to have to say something about what the first dude is going to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. People, I think... Still like him though? That's a weird thing. He's such I, a good. Yes. He's like, there's no better retail politician. He's going to be great on the uh, trail. He also be. I mean, being like the explainer in chief or whatever Obama called him, what the the guy in yeah. charge of explaining <laughs> stuff, uh, secretary in charge of explaining stuff. There is an incredibly stark case to make between Hillary Clinton and Cruz Trump, right? Yeah. And and where today's Republican Party is. No one has really put that fine a point on it, and this yeah. probably isn't the time to do it. But you can just see Bill. You know, at the convention, just laying out the absolute off the railness of the Republican Party and, you know, assuming they nominate one of these people versus how the country has performed under Democratic presidents, what have you. And that will be his most effective, certainly, use on the campaign. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, actually, to think that at some point she is going to have both Clinton and Obama essentially campaigning for her at least a little bit, you know? Yeah, maybe even. Well, also, you think about Bill Clinton versus Donald Trump, and you know, Bill Clinton—they actually have a lot in common. You know, they do. Well, right, and I think Bill Clinton can talk to white Southern voters in a way that Hillary can't. Yeah, some of those people we imagine to be part of Donald Trump's base, but it'll be really interesting to to have actually a working class white guy from the South talk to that that group of people versus, you know, the son of a millionaire from New York City. I mean, it sort right. of puts in stark relief. Okay, okay, you guys say that, you know, like we, we talk about the things that are motivating Trump voters, and a lot of it is white nativism, xenophobia, et cetera. Some of it is also sort of a sense that Obama is not like them in terms of education, upbringing, worldview. And Bill Clinton was always the guy that could speak to kind of like this Southern white, maybe former Dixiecrat group. It'll be interesting to see him on the trail, like talking about Donald Trump. First of all, the population of that group—I mean, the I guess the former Reagan Democrats who became Clinton Democrats—they're shrinking. They're they're a much smaller block of the electorate now compared to you know a lot of the faster-growing demographics like you know obviously Hispanics and Asian Americans, but also suburban swing voters that I would think overwhelmingly will support the Democrat over a Donald Trump or a Ted Cruz. I mean, overwhelmingly. And I'm sure they love Bill Clinton. I mean, mm-hmm. that just seems like sort of where the where the real sweet spot is. Annie, as further just indication that you're the smartest person she, in this podcast, mm-hmm. which granted is a low bar. Um, <laughs> fug, a de- definition of fug on Merriam-Webster is, full definition is the stuffy atmosphere of a poorly venti- ventilated space, also a stuffy or malodorous emanation. Mm. Have we described our You're studio welcome. here in Washington, our second, <laughs> yeah, our, new, exactly. our new studio? I know, our new studio is actually pretty nice. Uh, yeah, actually. Well, the irony there is thick because <laughs> we are out of time on this our very last podcast yeah. for America, like the end. Yeah. That is all we have. This has been an amazingly fun podcast to do for a year. 
to be perfectly blunt with everyone. Yeah, it's campaign season. All of us are traveling constantly. And to get even <laughs> two of us in the same place at the same time to record it ended up being something that we just logistically couldn't do. We tried to figure out how to do it. But the truth is that the podcast was supposed to be the three of us together. And for the next year, it's going to be unlikely that there is ever going to be a given week that we can do that. We're sending all of you back to the Slate Gab Fest. <laughs> right. Yes. Thank you for, for cheating on the Gab Fest with us. <laughs> we promise we'll show up there to make it worse. Right. Occasionally. No. no uh, we'll be darkening a podcast near you. Yeah. I will miss you guys, but I know that we'll reconvene over alcoholic beverages to Kvetch and Cavell. I don't even know if that's a proper use of the word Cavell. Hey, thank you. By the way, to, to Panoply, thank you to Slate, thank you. Well, I have a whole to, thank you list. Oh, all right. Thanks to our producer, Jocelyn Frank. Thanks to Laura Mayer. Thanks to AC Valdez and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please keep in touch with us on Twitter. Annie, Mike, uh, Mike, whatever his <laughs> right, name is. We just is. keep forgetting <laughs> each other. It's fine, whatever. Call me Matt. But you guys have been great. I, I have. This has been nothing but a really fun yeah. ride. So. Thank you, Alex. And thank Go you, fuck listeners. yourself, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're barely speaking at this point. The creative differences. If you guys could see behind the scenes. Thank you, Annie and Mark. And thank you, people who wrote in and sent us illustrations and listened to us and otherwise sent us emails. We love you. We will be returning to some kind of airwave individually, collectively, with more people at another time, on another day, in another universe, I am sure. Indeed. But for now, we have to go to Iowa. Yeah. Ooh, see you all in Iowa. Guys, one more time for Mark Leibovich and Annie Lowry in D.C., I'm Alex Wagner in New York. Thanks for listening.